You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, welcome to Real Investor Radio. This is Craig Fuhr. I'm joined here today again by my co-host, Jack Bevere. Jack, good to see you. Absolutely. Good morning, sir. It appears that we are up to episodes 20 and 21 today. Looking forward to jumping in. We have a very special guest. Can't, I just can't wait to jump into the conversation. But Jack, um, for the folks who are just tuning in, tuning in, you and I had a pretty good discussion on the last uh, couple podcasts um, regarding the market in general, uh, where things are heading, sort of some of our prognostications and predictions, as well as the Airbnb bust that everyone is talking about these days. So I'd encourage everybody who uh, is tuning in for the first time, or maybe even for the second or third, to go back and check out those last two episodes because um, I think it was a pretty lively discussion. Jack, don't, Jack and I don't always agree on where the market's heading, so that we had a pretty lively debate there. So uh, yeah, so how you been, man? Good? Good, absolutely. It's been, uh, it's, it's good that we release these podcasts on a timely basis because the world seems to be changing very quickly, like on a week over week basis. We had a huge run up in treasury rates last week. Wall Street's freaking out. Uh, the tone in the world's getting a little bit more pessimistic. And um, so it was uh, super timely that um, we were able to, to get our guest today on because she's got some, some strong contrarian opinions about this stuff that I'm, I'm excited to get into. Yeah, we'll introduce her in just a second. But uh, with regards to the market, um, I was watching an interesting interview yesterday where uh, the gentleman who was giving the presentation um, sort of went through some key economic indicators that, that without exception, point to recession. And uh, Jack, I'm not really familiar with this first one here. So maybe you can jump in on this one. It's the twos and tens. Um, so it's the 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 two year yield versus the ten year yield, and sort of looking at the thirty week moving average. Uh, once it crosses above the thirty uh, week moving average, that that indicator, it is a one hundred percent probability of a recession. It's never been wrong in the past, and so that uh, that average has now moved above the uh, the thirty week moving average. Uh, the second indicator that he mentioned, which is not always a precise predictor of recession, would be just consumer sentiment. And so it's basically, you know, future expectations minus current situation. And I think that we could all agree that the consumers are sort of, you know, there's a lackluster, lackluster sentiment about uh, the future. And I think a lot of people are very nervous about our situation today with a second war in Israel. People are now talking about Taiwan and China, you know, potentially invading Taiwan. Um, so I think there's just a lot of anxiousness in the market. And then finally, the third indicator uh, was unemployment. And um, it's still obviously low, Jack, but it has crossed. Uh, it is ticking up and it's crossed above the 12 month moving average. And once it goes above the 36 month moving average, that is a 100% probability historically of recession. So we're not there yet, but it's ticking up. And one of the, uh, the, big the, the big indicators that I've been reading more and more about, Jack, is these zombie corporations out there, these people who are basically borrowing to pay their interest. And uh, these companies, I should say, 
and that uh, you know they're all within by 2025 they're all going to have to refi uh, their their debt their corporate debt at a rate that is now going to be double what their current rate is. And by the way, these companies that have to do this, Jack, employ over 11 million Americans. We're talking about refinancing close to $2 trillion in corporate debt by 2025. And these companies employ 11 million Americans. So with that, you know, maybe get your over, overview on just uh, as, we, as we move on, Jack. Um, but I would go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, you yeah. I think like the, the tone is getting definitely more pessimistic. Um, <clears throat> all the indicators that you just described being, you know, primary drivers of that. At the same time, I think it, today, this morning, the GDP numbers came out, and the the country is growing at I think it was like a four point nine percent GDP growth rate uh, for the year, which is incredibly strong. And so it's it's really odd because we've been <clears throat> I feel like we've been talking for over a year about this recession that's coming, right? In, in April, there was a recession coming in six months. In October of 2022, there was a recession coming in six months. In April of 2023, there was a recession coming in six months. And the strength of the consumer has been, has just, just punted and punted and punted that idea. And <clears throat> I feel like we're probably, we may be even be getting to a place where investors are you know, it's it's the 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 boy who cried wolf, right? Like, you know, there I think are a certain segment of the population is just like they've been talking about recession. This is just clickbait. Like, this is never actually going to get here um, because the consumer just continues to defy all of these, you know, all of these prognostications. Um, I was at I just got back from from Miami. I was down at the uh, the asset based securities conference down in Miami. Um, we did a securitization a couple of years ago, so we're very you know interested in what's going on with that market. It affects both the SCR and fix and flip uh, loan pricing, so we try to you know stay in front of those crowds as well. And the, the you know w something that struck me was there was two they had what three economists as kind of like one of their keynote you know macro economist uh, panels, and I was frankly shocked by the consensus the fact that the panel on the stage had a consensus view that we are still going we are going into a recession still uh, we're not going to soft land this thing um you know 2 months ago there was a lot of soft landing talk i think that's turned you know 6 months ago there was it was 50-50 3 months ago it was we're going to soft land this today it's turned we're not going to soft land this and the impact of a recession, I think, is the X factor. You know, the consumer has been what has allowed the economy to punt and punt and punt, and like you know, housing prices have stayed up, um, and so the consumer has has been has like been the engine, the fuel to allow us to continue to have a good economy. Um, but even the Wall Street folks now are you know kind of consensus planning for a third quarter of next year recession. Um, and, um, I'm sure we'll get into some of the, I mean, I'm sure I'll bring up some of the reasons why I don't want to go off on a long tirade here, but, sure. uh, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the reasoning behind why they were saying this is, you know, what has happened, here's why it's been that way, but here's why we're going to run out and sure. approximately when, uh, was a compelling argument that, um, 
really kind of changed my tune. So even from two weeks ago, when we were having that debate, I think I've probably gotten a little bit more pessimistic since then as well. So you were, you, you and uh, our previous guest, Logan Motoshami were just uh, absolute bulls on the market. And so it's funny to hear your, your, your uh, changing sentiments, but uh, let's go ahead and bring in our guest today. I'm so excited to have her. Um, Melody, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Uh, it's just such a pleasure. Um, so folks, this is uh, Melody Wright. Melody is a 24-year veteran in the banking and financial services industry. She was recently named as one of Mortgage Women Magazine's Woman of Technology, and she's a contributing writer for multiple publications. Um, I was uh, introduced in, uh, to Melody through my research and uh, for the show and just sort of my general reading and watching um, through a a pretty awesome article that you did for Housing Wire called Debunking the Housing Inventory Myth, which we'll get into today. Uh, and it's an, it's obviously a article that is creating a lot of controversy and sparking a lot of debate in the industry. So we're just so, uh, so delighted to have you, Melody. Thanks for taking the time. Yes. And thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks. So um, listen, you know, we, Jack and I uh, are longtime residential real estate investors. Jack, uh, certainly far more than me, but uh, we've invested in residential real estate all around the country. Uh, the Dominion Group, as you know, is also a uh, one of the nation's largest lenders mm -hmm. of DSO, DSCR and bridge loans. And so that's sort of our jumping off point um, today in terms of, you know, what we hope to cover with you and just sure. really like to have a just a general debate on where the market is, where you're seeing residential around the country and, and you know, where you think it's heading. So sure. jump on in. <laughs> we can jump off there. Maybe sure. you could tell us quickly um, about the, you know, how you've come to some of your findings and some, sure. you know, the way you feel about the market. Sure. Yeah. So just a quick intro, you know, I fell into mortgage finance and housing in 2006 by accident, which is how most people end up in mortgage. Um, you know, it, and right as things were topping, uh, my company got purchased by private equity Cerberus. Uh, so we actually led all the write downs of the crisis because Cerberus was looking for a purchase price adjustment <laughs> because they could see the writing on the wall. Things were slowing down. And so I kind of became their girl Friday going out across the company, um, teaching them how the company ran by gathering a lot of management reports. Uh, so as they learned, I kind of learned as well. And I got like a crazy education during that time period that I think I got a lifetime of education because it was just so intense. You know, you'd walk into the office, we're writing down another 800 million today, you know, things like that. So it was just a crazy, crazy time. But I started in mortgage finance where I really understood the intricacies of how, um, you know, origination work together with servicing and servicing is that back end, like after you originate your loan, that's the taking of your payments. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, fast forward, uh, we got into a lot of trouble, uh, you know, with the Federal Reserve consent order, the attorney general settlement on servicing practices. I sort of helped manage that, um, got to get real familiar with how this entire thing worked from beginning to end. And then we kind of went into bankruptcy as well. Um, and from there, to kind of keep our assets safe, I uh, basically got tapped on the shoulder to run default and clean that up. So, 
you know, because at the time at GMAC where I was, we had over 65,000 foreclosures, you know, <laughs> and something had to be done. We were getting threatened by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that they were going to pull servicing if we didn't, you know, get rid of a certain percentage of our seriously delinquent loans. As I'm sure you guys know, the way that that was Wait. affected. Yeah. I was going to say, they must have really loved you. Boy, lucky you, huh? Yeah. Oh, my Fannie rep won an, won an award that year because, but it, because it was just a problem, you know, the way that that problem was solved is essentially a lot of the investors came in and started participating, you know, with Fannie and Freddie in the auctions, kind of offloading those properties. You know, we had tried loss mitigation um, options. And, and honestly, you know, I think that what people forget about that crisis is that there was a lot of investor speculation then as well, you know, between like 23 and 26%, you know, now mm -hmm. we're at about 30%, depending on the market, it could be more. But I think a lot of people say, think subprime is like low credit. And, and in reality, it was a lot of non-traditional products, like a lot of things like a DSCR loan, you know, kind of the Alte loans, et cetera. And so, you know, in reality, a lot of the uh, inventory wasn't, inventory of prime borrowers. Now, later in the cycle, it became that. Um, but there was so much investor speculation and, and that, that, you know, kind of Wall Street kind of came in, and started buying those up to do long term rental. So from there, I kind of went out and worked at several non-bank um, origination and servicing companies trying to help get them up to where, you know, sort of meet regulatory guidelines got very frustrated in the industry because the technology is so abysmal, you know, but basically their core systems were created in 1968, 1972. Um, you know, it's just insane. You walk around some of these places today and it's blue and black screen still. So I went out to fintech companies and try, and it's so true guys. Um, and the paper, don't get me started on the paper. I can't even talk about the paper, but um, you know, I went out, tried to build all these solutions to help the industry. Cause I really believed we could do this right. You know, I, I, I believe that. Um, but, uh, Ultimately, to really change the game, it, it's it's a, the entire industry would have to be disrupted. Uh, and, you know, people just weren't at a place they weren't willing to do that. And then we kind of hit that COVID boom. And I was working at a fintech and he kind of said, hey, listen, I need to understand when rates are going up because this is, you know, this is so crazy. It's awesome. We're making a lot of money. And so I really started diving into macro and I've spent you know, last kind of three or four years, just getting a crash course kind of education in the business cycle, in macroeconomics, you know, what are the drivers? I was very familiar with what drove our business, but I didn't really understand our business in context of the economy. And that's really kind of what I started looking into. And, you know, for the longest time, I thought mortgage was going to be totally fine. It's not even a big part of my thesis. But what I came to understand is uh, essentially, you know, a lot of the lending was done on inflated credit scores and then the Fannie Freddie models that most people use because 95% of origination, you know, is backed by the agencies or Ginny Mae, right? So 5% private, that's, that's kind of a flip from what it used to be. Um, but essentially, I realized, too, that we were probably going to have a little bit of trouble in mortgage. But... This all brings me to uh, probably last January, I wrote that article um, and I was, cause I was just seeing a lot of themes. The biggest theme that I thought people were missing were our demographics. 
uh, but I was looking at this new building that was going on. I was looking at, you know, the short-term rental craze. I was looking at people thinking they were going to be millionaires from long-term rental, you know, and I was looking at everybody screaming that there was no inventory. When, when you look at the numbers, like that just didn't even make any sense. You know, we have 15 million vacant properties in this country. Like, you know, the boomers are retiring at 10,000 a day. Why would they want to carry multiple houses, you know, with expenses growing when they can make 5% on short-term treasuries or in money market funds? And so I just, I couldn't understand why everyone thought housing looked so great. Uh, so what I did is I got in my car because, you know, kind of Logan and I wrote articles for the same series. His was very different than my, as you yes, imagine. decidedly different. <laughs> but and honest, like you can read my my article talked about pent up demand, like nobody else was saying. I was like, no, no, we're going to have demand. And the, the builders figured it out. And the way that they got through it is through net price reduction. So the reason some of the prices have stayed where they were is because of all of these buy downs and concessions. But that. Yeah. So I know I'm I just lot. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's uh, yeah, that's uh I just want to just slow it all down here, yeah. you know, for the sake of the listener and just say again, so this, what, what time period was it where you wrote your great article for housing wire? So I wrote it, it got published in January. I wrote it in December. Yeah. All right. So, so we're now, you know, close to a year away from it. Yeah. And so going into that, you bring in all of the experience that you just spent the last 10 minutes, um, you know, uh, explaining, which is awesome. But what was your guiding philosophy going in? You just you just didn't really believe what you were hearing or seeing in the residential market, correct? Yeah. And I think that that's like all of my instincts from having been here before, right? Just mm -hmm. a little bit. Like I honestly, I just kept asking kind of people in my industry, like this isn't good. Like, you know, we're seeing these double digit increases in prices. Like it's, it's going insane, right? So- um, you know, I, I just couldn't, and nobody was as concerned as I was, which kind of set alarm bells in my head because these are people that, you know, should have been a little bit more reasonable. So I kind of felt like some psychology was <laughs> coming into play. Uh, but so that's kind of, you know, I, I, based on my research, it just, I could not see, um, how, you know, based on the fact that property taxes and insurance were going up, that we had already started to see borrowers come start struggling in December of last year. Um, but, you know, that, that's a seasonal thing. They typically get caught up with you sure. know, tax returns and bonuses. But but I knew long term. And, and that's the thing where I think I might be a little different than some is that I'm, I'm more concerned with the path. I'm not really concerned with predictions. And I could just tell long term. We had serious headwinds for affordability, even for people that actually did qualify for these um, mortgages or for the investors that paid all cash, because we knew that a lot of those investors, that was leveraged cash. Sure, some of it wasn't, uh, but a lot of it was where they refied out of a bigger property or they took out a home equity on another property. Or, you know, somewhere like PNC Gate said, sent them a note from their wealth management division saying, listen, take a personal loan so you can show up with all cash. To And so I was really more concerned with that um, class of and not even mortgages. But I could just tell from the investor speculation that trouble was ahead. So, you know, that's kind of when 
and I'm I'm a I'm a validate your assumptions kind of girl. Like I you are I, definitely you're <laughs> definitely a boots on the ground kind of gal. Exactly. And so I woke up in uh, you know, kind of late January, early February, and Joe from Bloomberg was like, the housing market is turning around. You know, there's it's all gonna be golden from here. And I was like, oh my God like everybody's crazy. And I, and within three days I decided to get in my car and drive to Austin because I knew that was kind of the epicenter. And if I could, because I was looking at the permits, I was looking at all the data. That was what was just driving me insane. And none of the pieces were making any sense together. And so I had to go see for myself. You were looking at the permits being pulled by builders and or developers for yes. residential and multifamily or yes. single family and multifamily residential? Yes, both of them. So you, so you jump in the car, you decide to go validate, go to Austin. Uh, you know, we all love Austin. Uh, so, you know, I, yeah. I, I'd have gone there with you. Yeah. But so, <laughs> so, so what did you discover when you got there? Yeah, so I stopped in Nashville first um, on the way to Austin, and I was, you know, you had you could hear stories at that time on social me media about exurbs, um, which are these are these ideas that people, you know, went forty miles out of the city in a cow pasture and started building homes because they thought people would want to, you know, that would be the affordable option. Well, the cow pasture homes were not affordable. That's what I found, you know. So, kind of my methodology is I would. You know, I do the perimeter of a city, you know, drive out from downtown to these places so I could get a sense of what's the commute, what's the traffic like, you know, and then also how many new build sites are there. And and, and just as I drove the perimeter of Nashville, you know, you go a couple of miles, there's another one, a couple of miles. And I, and I was like, oh, OK, this is worse than I even thought, you know, and then you go to these things called mega sites. I don't know. I mean, they were new to me. I had never seen them before where you would go and all the builders were there. The yeah. Nationals plus the locals. Sure. And there was just a ton like these whole little cities were being built. You know, the idea that you could live, work, play here you know, um, clubhouses, all this, but it's all out in the middle of nowhere with no infrastructure. And so I was like, okay, this is pretty bad. And then the multifamily, like the multifamily in Nashville. And I swear that first trip is such a blur. I feel like I have to go redo it. Um, cause I had no idea what I was doing, but I, you know, I would come upon this massive multifamily complex, completely vacant, completely finished. And nobody was talking about this. And it's all luxury, right? It's not it's like affordable malls. Yeah. yeah, you're gonna make yeah. me start screaming. But anyway, sorry, but it's all luxury. And I was like, what is this thing? Is this Evergrande? Or am I in China? You know, I was just like, <laughs> is this a bridge to nowhere? I don't understand. And you know, and you would see across, and this was my very first trip in Nashville, across, and I can't even remember the area now, but from this huge multifamily, it was a brand new uh, strip mall. Uh, probably, you know, 16 to 17 locations and only one was rented. And one thing that I can tell you at that trip, I saw a lot of coming soon signs, a lot of coming soon 2022, coming soon, you know, it was 2023. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I think a lot of people could explain that to themselves that, oh, it's all the, you know, the disruption from the labor markets, things are just delayed. So it's coming, it's going to come. 
So I left Nashville and, you know, drove through the floods uh, to Austin. <laughs> it was a crazy trip, by the way. And I get to Austin and I, I, I have, I still can't articulate the first mega site in Austin I went to was called Sweetwater. And I, it was a complete accident. I, I was driving into the city, picked up my cousin because uh, I had family there driving in and I looked to my right and I'm like, what is that? And I turn in and it is just, you know, 600,000 to two, $3 million homes being built up into the hills, nobody was there. And I, I probably stood in the middle of that subdivision for five minutes. Just, just, I couldn't process. Like, I was like, this isn't, this isn't true. This isn't yeah. happening because how could it happen again? After we talked so much about, you know, the overbuilding last time, the mania last time, like it was just, it was very difficult to accept. So go ahead. <clears throat> Yeah. So, I, you know, what really um, strikes me as you're speaking there is that, you know, I sort of lived through a lot of this and I, I told you I'd recount the story for you quickly as when you came on the show. Um, I, I was listening to uh, Lynette Zhang the other day from ITM Trading and she's, you know, she's quite a character. But one of the things that um, she was talking about was just sort of the factual knowledge of the market, which which I'm sure we're about to get into versus sort of the what I see and feel. Um, and uh, I think a lot of times, you know, people can get caught up in sort of the spreadsheets and the facts, which is great. But it's the when you go out there and you stand amongst it and you say to yourself, hold on here, this doesn't make sense. It just doesn't look right. It doesn't, I, I can feel it in my gut. Exactly. And so uh, back in that 2010-ish time period, I get a call from a buddy of mine in, in Utah. Brilliant. Uh, rehabber, fix and flip guy. Um, and he said, man, the spreads in Phoenix right now are insane. You've got to come out here. So it took a ride out to Phoenix. And what we saw back then, Melody, was I'm sure a lot of what you saw was these mega sites in the middle of nowhere. We're not talking Phoenix proper. We're talking out in like Gilbert and yeah. Queen Creek and Apache Junction, surprise. which, yeah, surprise. All of those places which are now built up. Yeah. However, back then they were just pig farms. You could still smell the pigs. You still can in some, Craig. You still can. <laughs> and so you get in your car. I'll never forget. I, you know, And I wasn't a guy who had known a whole lot about Arizona. We live here on the East Coast in, in Maryland. So here I am, get off the plane, get a car, you know, jump in. And you're an hour and a half or, or a good hour, at least from the airport, getting out to these sites that are in the middle of nowhere. And you'd go and you would see, here's what you would see. You'd ride up and you'd see the big uh, cinder block fence that surrounded the entire development with a nice entrance. And then it was like, you know, mains, main, mains sticking out of the ground and one house. Yes. And then it was like six more mains and, and lots. And so what we were doing were we were buying these houses after the bus that were built for 350 in 2007. We're buying them for 85 grand at the courthouse steps, going in and putting, patching them up and painting them with a little granite and, and, and carpet, selling them for a buck 60 on, you know, the following Monday. Right. Right. And that went on for a good six or seven months until, you know, every investor in the country decided that they wanted to also come to <laughs> yeah. Arizona. But, but the point of, the point of bringing it all up, Melody, was we did the same thing in Chicago. Um, we did the same thing in parts of Florida, mm -hmm. uh, where you would just, 
you just could ride into these developments that were out in the middle of nowhere and say to yourself, this can't last. And so uh, I'll finish up by just a quickie here. My wife and I were seriously considering earlier, right around the time where you wrote the article, moving to Florida. So we go down to St. Augustine where they have decent school systems and we ride into these communities where it's, yeah, we're doing 10,000 houses here. We're doing yeah. 15,000 yeah. houses here. We're doing yeah. 7,000 houses here. Yeah. And we're like, holy shit, are yeah. you kidding me? Like, where's all this demand coming from? And so, right. you know, I, I right. haven't been down there, but I, but, oh, you know, I was just reading boy. that St. Augustine is one of the, you know, largest declining markets in the country right now. Yeah. So go ahead. I, that was all, that was a long way of me saying, I feel no. your pain and I've, I've been there with you out there driving well, the streets. I think you would be so frustrated, Craig, because you're, you would go back to like Buckeye, back to Phoenix, back even to Gilbert further over. And it's the bridges to nowhere. Again, you come into a, a subdivision, the walls, like you say, are built up, uh, the basketball court <laughs> the, for the playground. And yeah, then, you right. know, the, the flags are whipping in the wind, the tumbleweeds right. are, you know, it, it's just like one of the most bizarre experiences. And then, you know, over there in Surprise and in that area, I mean, again, they just went crazy in between the feedlots, um, but no infrastructure, none. And and the craziest thing about Austin and one of the exurbs, uh, way out in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, two RV camps down the road where people, retirees are living because they can't afford to live anywhere else. Home selling for 400000 Median income was around 40000 you know. Um, nothing there, no gas stations, but you would go in a subdivision and none of the, the, none of the houses were finished, except you'd have this one little lone house and it would have a for rent sign out right. in front Because <laughs> you know, some guy bought that house. Like he built, like he said, hey, broker or somebody, I want to buy an investment home in Austin to do mm -hmm. long-term rental. And, and, and somebody said to him, there's no inventory. Okay, well, I'll build one. Let's build one. And that's what a lot of these individual in investors took a brochure, a pamphlet, and kind of said, yeah, I'm going to get my my Austin, Texas long-term rental, or, or I'm going to turn it into short-term rental because, you know, one of these programs, I won't mention names, tells me I, I can get an average daily rate of $600 a day. Well, wait a minute. You know, that's 30 miles from Austin. Uh, you know, there's no amenities and mm -hmm. nobody's going to stay out there for an Airbnb when you've got 14,000 Airbnbs in Austin. Uh, so people just had all these what I call COVID fever dreams about getting rich quick. And, and I don't blame them. Right. Like, you know, the idea of being able to do something besides, you know, sell your soul to corporate America <laughs> is I, I want to do that, whatever that is as well, you know, so sure. I understood it. But, you know, Austin was just it was just it was just overwhelming, like because you would go downtown and and so it was everywhere. The excerpts like one. This is a funny story. I maybe shouldn't even tell it. But one investor built this whole huge community out in Maynard, Texas. I, I shouldn't have probably said the name. But anyway, it's very close to the highest uh, percentage of registered sex offenders in the country. <laughs> And they had no idea. And now it's completely empty. I mean, completely empty. And Talk so, about your amenities. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can stop there. Right. Because it gets, it's just, but it just shows you that's when I realized like we have been taken over by the speculation, you know, genie. Like everybody has gone a little bit crazy. So is 
well, you know, in, there were many, pro, you know, causes of the Great Recession, not the least of which was overbuilding. Um, do you think that we have been quietly overbuilding at the same level as, you know, 20 years ago or whatever it was, 17 years ago? Yeah. So your my answer is probably going to be controversial, but I think it's worse. I think you look at Lennar, uh, we can take them as a, in particular, uh, there was a great article in 2009, um, you know, that was all about their tax bailout, because I think a lot of people forget they kind of got bailed out last time. And it was talking all about this exuberance, how they went crazy, they've learned their lesson, um, and talking about their biggest year where they delivered 38,000 homes, okay? <laughs> their own pace to deliver two times that, if not more this year. So, mm. you know, what a lot of people are doing is they're looking at history and they're not taking into consideration our demographics. And they also don't understand that we pull forward demand uh, during COVID. There's a great Harvard study out there Um and this is borne out by just talking to people. I, you know, it, it blows my mind, but I'll talk to a couple that says, oh yeah, we bought, we each bought a house, but we don't use the other house, you know, like, uh, you know, and it, it's just, it's pervasive uh, in a certain segment of our population, which I think is what is so confusing about this time, why the consumer seems so strong because that top 20% is still doing okay. Although I am seeing the super prime start to come under stress but they have options, right? Like I have nine properties in my portfolio. I can let go of one. Whereas, you know, 60% of Americans can't afford a thousand dollar emergency. That's a whole different conversation when they can't, you know, when they come under stress, you know, it's a lot more dire. And so I think, you know, we're a tell of two economies, Jack, in my opinion, you know, to what you were saying earlier about the consumer seeming strong. I think, that top 10, top 20%, they are still strong. And there's some reasons for that, like the ERC tax credits, uh, things like that money was still being pumped into the economy until really last month when you know uh, the government decided to stop and start auditing uh, those ERC rebates. Because, and I don't know, Craig, how familiar you are with those, but so- Wait. Yeah, you so put, you know, you're seeing commercial, you're seeing commercials on TV, billboards for employee exactly. retention tax credit. No, guy, like, I know guys that have created companies around those damn things. Dude, there yeah, you go. The, the legit, the the last legit application was a year ago. Like, right, <laughs> right. And we just kept pumping the money in. Like, and you can even yeah. look at, uh, you know, Daniel Martino Booth. I don't know if you guys know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, big look, I'm a big yeah, fan. Yeah, you can look at one of her charts of like the travel chart. You know, it just it, it matches the ERC rebates exactly. And so, you know, we don't know yet what the economy looks like without money being pumped in because it's just it was being pumped in in all these little sneaky places, you know, even to the point like student loans weren't actually you weren't looking at outstanding debt. You were looking at a $250 payment when you were writing a mortgage. I mean, so there's just so many things that. Um, everybody wants one answer. And in reality, it's just a very complicated picture, you know? Um, so anyway, so, let Jack, me, go let ahead. Me, yeah. So yeah. like, let me, um, cause I, I agree with the, you know, the, the, obviously I agree. It's like two different, you know, two different economies the, from the housing market perspective as well, though, do you think that we've overbuilt? I think it's also, there are multiple you know, multiple markets, they're, they're, you know, all price points, all geographies are not, act, do not act the same. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think that we've overbuilt 
period? Or do you think that we've overbuilt the $600,000 plus house? Because, because particularly with that demographic, you know, the demographic thing that you picked up, I think, you know, affordability, obviously, especially where mortgage rates are right now has become the primary driver for the low levels of demand that we have right now. A recession would exacerbate that. I do agree that like, you know, I'm you know, broad brushing here. You know, if you're $600,000 in California or, or, you know, Seattle, it's a different thing than being $600,000 in, in, you know, well, wherever, Kentucky, but yeah. Um, I do agree that perhaps, or not perhaps, I do agree that they've probably, that they've overbuilt the $600,000 plus um, price point, but there is a like, complete dearth of 300 to 450 new construction and something uh, that even, you know, that I was hearing as a theme, Zellman, uh, Ivy Zellman, I know you follow her as well. Um, her housing conference, I think it was a month ago, online housing conference referenced that you know a theme on on that was that the builders are now shifting down to the more affordable price point because where these mortgage rates are there's just not enough demand yeah. to, for us to continue to build $800,000 houses. Yeah. Um so do you think that it's like like is are is your is your concern uh segmented by price point or you know are you less worried about the more affordable segment or and more f- worried about the the higher end segment or do yeah. you think this is an across the board problem that we're going to see issues regardless of price point so i think we're going to see issues regardless but it's a structural problem like you're saying jack like to me yeah if all those homes being built out there were being built at 250,000 or 300,000 or 350,000 then i guarantee you there would be demand for that mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean cuz you know it, you know i i would buy a house then i'm refusing right now you know but but i would buy a house and so so i there's structurally we have built too many overpriced homes I think we have an excess. We will have an excess of inventory regardless because of these um, boomer second homes. And a lo- there's a lot of second home ownership in this country that I just don't think is going to be sustained due to uh, kind of rising costs, insurance, um, taxes, et cetera, unless we have a price correction. So, you know, if all things kept going forward, we don't have affordable housing. But at the same time, when you look at what's actually being constructed out there for $400,000, $600,000, a lot of these look like homes that, you know, I wouldn't have paid $200,000 for, you know, and they're being very cheaply built at the same time, similar to the McMansions of last time, right? Like, um, and so really what they've done is try to spruce up what is a starter home <laughs> and make it look like it's luxury when in reality, it really is just a starter home. And so I think that if, if there was, you know, repricing out there, I think a lot of this inventory would actually uh, get, get bought. Clearly. But until that happens, um, you know, there's going to be this frozen market, but the builders have affected a 15 to 25% price reduction. I mean, that's how they've gotten through the last year. And and they're going on overdrive right now. Like some of the, you know, advertisements we're getting are just kind of insane. So it's it's a complicated picture. And, and you may know, Jack, I track 70 cities because I, you know, real estate's local till it's not is kind of what I, I say. And I think each of these cities will be impacted very differently. But back to what you were saying, Craig, Florida, 
by far is again, and it's just hard for me to believe because I spent 2012 and 2013 down there cleaning up the default mess. I mean, I can't believe my eyes in Florida again, you know, but because of things like the insurance four times the national average and people waking up to like two times insurance bills and and then the taxes because it's on assessed value and then for new construction, the CDD tax, like Florida is just in a world of hurt because they haven't stopped Jack building in like Lakewood Ranch, you know, million dollar homes. They where my, that's where my in-laws live, by the way, in Lakewood Ranch. <laughs> yeah, they have. I mean, it. I can't. I can't even fit the video anywhere. Like I'm. I'm trying to work with someone to get it because you simply could not believe your eyes as you just kept driving and driving and driving. And they were and in in Lakewood Ranch in Florida in general. It seems like um, the difference between when I was in the, on the road in February and March and when I was just recently down there is that they're actually accelerating construction. Um, a lot of the sites down in Austin and Florida back in February, because I went to Florida, like after I was done with Austin, I went over to Florida uh, the first time. It, not as many workers, like they were, it just, but this last time, um, ton of workers. It looks like so, they're pushing to year end. So how do you explain that though? I mean, these are not dumb people, right? You can only kick the can for so long until you're real, until you're just like, hey, this is stupid, stop building. Right, like they don't have to build the next house, and and they and they and they're not going to build up a like you know, Wall Street won't let them build up an unlimited you know a, a massive amount of unsold inventory, especially on spec. Like they're not they're it's not going to have spec, spec inventory for like it's, longer than six months. They'll just stop building. No, they don't. They haven't. I mean, that's and so I've heard because I, I kept asking these same questions because I actually know a lot of these people at the builders because they're in my industry. And I called a lot of people from the road, by the way, saying like, can you believe like what is going on? Um, and they would acknowledge it, but they would acknowledge the larger problem. Uh, so, Jack, every time I listen to a earnings call, I get half convinced again because they just they really good at the gospel singing about what the what they learned from the last crisis. But all I have to do is get in my car and go to one of these new build sites. Um, and by the way, there's maps of them. You'll, you can find them easily to realize like that none of that the idea that they are they're smarter than this now um that's just not accurate they're not seeing when you look at things in aggregate that's when and that's what a lot of people are doing is they look at the aggregate numbers but there's been some cool things i've done in my substack recently because we know the fed doesn't track cancellations and so a lot of that yeah. a lot of that inventory that people think uh you know was putting contracts, yeah, was putting contracts, but the, yeah, yeah, and so essentially, you've got completed homes for sale growing exponentially. And then the second thing that Jack, you may not be thinking about because I hear you is the bill to rent. That uh, so everybody went crazy on bill to rent, but what's happening is American homes for rent and the bigger players are becoming net sellers. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, when they think about it, they don't think about single family residents. And, and single family rental together. And, and that's what's happening is you've got so many of these single family residents built to rent and the multifamily. But now at the, the now multi like renting is cheaper than owning. And so you've got a com competitive like competition that I think a lot of people aren't used to. And they don't understand that, you know, you're and then you have the short term rentals. We can't forget those because some of those will come onto the market. 
that's all going to pull away from what the builders are building. And so I think people aren't looking at housing stock in total and aren't understanding our changed economic dynamics um, that are a little different this time where it's it's cheaper to rent. But isn't that... Yeah, like uh, hey, Jack, I'd like to uh, drill in on a, on a bunch of that there. Um, yeah. We got about a minute and a half uh, <laughs> we can play with in this uh, in this particular they, it goes fast it um, and we'll, we'll restart we'll restart for the next episode and we can jump back in at that point um, but what, one of the things I really want to jump in there with you Melody is this sort of um, financial shell game that I feel like the builders are playing with uh, permits versus contracts versus land um, uh, you mentioned that, I believe, in one of your most recent uh, episodes. I think it was on Wealthion. So I'd love to jump into that with you. Sure. Uh, why don't we end it here and ask everybody to jump in for what should be an even better conversation on the next episode. This is Real Investor Radio. And uh, we're coming back on the next episode with Melody Wright. So come on right back. We'll see you then.